Well, yesterday, um, being on the town square with the church van, handing out a ton of candy, uh, we saw a theme. The kiddos would come by, and they'd take a handful, or they'd get a handful into their bag. If it dropped on the ground, they were quick to pick it up and put it into their bag. Um, Sometimes we saw repeat customers. Pastor Wood said I was too generous because sometimes he'd put some in and then I'd put some more in. He was right because we ran out. Not too early. We were there for well over an hour, but he was right. We ran out. But guess what? When we go before God week in and week out to see from his word, oh, his word and the implications upon our lives never runs out. God's grace is is more than we can ever even take in on any given Sunday. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer to ask him for the help that each and every one of us needs. Let's pray, church. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come once again to your word. We're thankful for all the riches and blessings that is provided through your son, Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it, but you give it to us liberally. You continue to pour out your mercy and your grace and your truth to us, oh Lord, in ways that we could never ask or imagine on our own, but we ask for your help today. We ask for you to feed us from your word today as we need it. We're desperate for it. Week in and week out, we're desperate for it. In the midst of every other message that comes to us throughout our lives and throughout our weeks and throughout our nights and mornings and afternoons, Lord, we need right now your word to us to lift us up, to encourage us. Help us all to be at the edge of our seats in anticipation for what your word reveals so that we might be helped and encouraged, that we might be able to apply these things to our lives for our good, for our encouragement. Lord, for our blessing, we, we, we ask for your help in these things. And we know that you like to answer prayers like this. So we ask, Lord, that you would answer this prayer this morning as we look to your word once again. I say this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, over the years, have had the task of pulling together and working on my resume, and maybe you have as well. And when I was pursuing kind of career-type jobs in a variety of different fields after my master's degree, some of the resumes would look different based on where I was sending those resumes because, of course, preaching and counseling and discipleship ministry doesn't quite transfer over to most, you know, so-called secular jobs. You know, they're not really highly coveting experience like that for most companies, of course, right? But when I was getting my resume together for vocational ministry opportunities, the same resume that I sent to our search committee here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin a couple years ago, I was, of course, putting on that resume the kind of spiritual leadership and ministry experience before potential churches that were looking for a pastor, right? That was the kind of stuff that I was putting on that resume. But no matter how much I might have put on my resume, nothing comes close to the resume of Jesus. His LinkedIn profile is unmatched. 
He is so powerful. He is supremely authoritative. And he's unique. None like him. His resume stands out with a pile of resumes up into the, up into the mountains, into the skies, uh, into the clouds. His is the one that stands out the most. And as we come to the end and final four of a string of ten miracles that Jesus had on his resume that Matthew purposefully ordered and wrote about Right after Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, those miracles we've been seeing in the last two chapters of Matthew 8 and 9 for the last month. These ten miracles that no matter how many so-called prosperity preachers might try to mimic on their resumes, they just won't ever keep up, will they? Because they just don't cut it like Jesus. His works and deeds are way, way, way better than anything that anyone could ever put forward. What he had done, what he pointed to, all the things that he was, what did it reveal? It revealed that he really is and was the authoritative king. So let's review before we see the final four miracles today. Let's review what we've seen the last few sermons. He healed the leper with a touch. The crippled servant from a distance. The friend from her fever. He even calmed the storm. Cast out demons into pigs. And then made the forgiven paralytic stand up and walk. As we saw last week. And today, we're even going to see that he has power over death itself as he will raise this little girl from the dead. Heal a woman hemorrhaging blood. Give blind men that are in the dark pitch black darkness. Sight. And even heal a man who cannot speak because of the demon that is possessing him. And just in case you're wondering... No, I didn't plan this sermon on this spooky holiday weekend. It just happened to fall on this Sunday, right? Death, blood, darkness, and demons might sound like I might have planned this sermon on this day, but I'm telling you, I didn't. I wouldn't blame you if you thought I did because I don't have a good track record on this. If you remember a few years ago in the Genesis series, I preached on the same weekend a sermon titled Family Murder, when Cain killed Abel in cold blood. But these were both coincidences, but here we are at the end of this fast-paced two-chapter roller coaster of healings. And we're going to see today that Jesus is the great reviver who miraculously gives hurting and even dead people something that they were missing out on before. That is life, energy, sight, and speech. Let's see it from our text this morning as we take the first two points together and point number one, or miracle number one, the woman revived, and then also miracle number two, the dead revived. We're going to see this from Matthew chapter 9 and verses 18 through 26. Let's see it for ourselves. This is God's word. While he was saying these things to them, 
Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the little girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. Now, we usually don't take two points like this together, but I hope you can see by what we just read That when you have a wonderful healer and savior like Jesus, sometimes his mighty works happen in a kind of rapid fire way, don't they? And we just have to see what he's doing kind of back to back to back. Or even intertwined as this account couples multiple healings together in the same event in time. One after another. Then we're going to see two more healings after these ones. Matthew is making it quite clear. He's making the point here, showing us how amazing and unique and and wonderful Jesus really is over and over and over. I hope you've felt that the last several weeks. So while, as we just saw, Jesus was talking to the religious people, as we saw last week, right, he, about fasting, he's talking to John's disciples and pointing to the fact that he was the main event and that his ministry is so unique, that he's the real uh, deal, he's the fulfillment of the law, that he's the one to look to, he's the one who sets the agenda. Right after we saw that, as, you know, kind of piggybacking after last week, we saw that he's interrupted from that communication with those religious people, he's interrupted with the desperate dad who recently lost his daughter. She died. Now, we're going to address that story in a moment, but before that, I want to focus here on this interlude healing that happened while Jesus was en route to that little dead girl, to that young daughter. While Jesus was on his way to her, All of a sudden, he experienced, as another gospel account reveals to us, power go out of him that was tangible, and it was almost as if he was just zapped, tired, because something had happened. Now, Jesus knew what happened. Of course he knew what happened. But, you see, on the way to help this desperate man with his daughter, he ran in to a desperate woman, didn't he? The text that we just read said that she suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 whole years. Another passage, one of the other gospels tell us that that it was that long as well. And it's interesting, um, for we see in one of the other gospels accounts that 
Jairus' daughter, this, this was the, this religious leader, this man who comes to Jesus that we're gonna see in a minute, that her daughter just happened to be 12 years of age as well. There's no some huge kind of significant thing to point out there other than the fact that it was just really interesting that this woman had been suffering with her chronic condition uh, and bleeding and challenge for the same amount of time that this little girl who had just passed away had lived her whole life. Could you imagine what it would have been like for this poor woman? She was suffering with a condition that made her even outcast like the leper that we saw before because her condition, you see, made her ceremonially unclean and would make others unclean if they came into contact with her, kind of like the leper. Could you imagine what it would have been like to live her life for 12 years? She was destitute, suffering from pain, lacking energy as she would have been anemic, losing blood like that. And Luke tells us that she spent all her money on doctors. And Mark tells us not only that she spent all her money trying to get help from her relief, because that's what we do when we're suffering. We go seek help wherever we can get it. But that the doctors actually made things worse for her and not better. So this poor woman was broke and worse off now as she tried to get help from everyone else. But now, you see, she's not coming to everyone else, is she? Remember what we saw Jesus telling the Pharisees last week? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but what? The sick. Now, of course, in that context, it was relating to Jesus going to and eating with and spending time with blatant sinners and tax collectors and a bunch of really bad type people, spiritual lack of health is what he's talking about there. But you see, he had a compassionate heart also for sick and suffering and destitute people. And don't you see it demonstrated here in the last few chapters and even beautifully here with this poor woman who was suffering? What a compassionate savior we have. What a wonderful Doctor for sin, sick, sinners. And he's also the doctor for sin sick, not only sin sick, but perpetually sick, even chronically hurting this chronically hurting woman as well. Jesus is amazing. Her faith led her to seek out Jesus as her only solution to the desperate problem that she was in. She tried all the other doctors. She must have heard reports of Jesus' healing as that was going throughout all the land. And now she's there with the faith that Jesus is the solution to her problem. And what happens? What happens? We saw it. And I don't have this on my ministry resume. Nothing like this. But Jesus does. And he says, and he does what no one else could do. And in fact, he made her well. Not, not because she snuck up on him like some you know, ninja, secret ninja, as if merely touching him produced this unplanned magic reaction and response. 
Of course, that's not the reality. Jesus does things intentionally, sovereignly. That's not the picture that we have. As Philip Ryken rightly put it, he said, The woman is unclean, so she has no right to touch Jesus. But her desperation stirs her resolution. She thinks, I have to touch him. And she is both wrong and right. She is wrong since Jesus can heal without a touch. We've already seen that, right? We've seen that throughout our series. But she is right that she does need to make contact with him. She does need his healing power. And Jesus grants it. Now, if desperate was a word to describe anyone, this woman, right, would be someone who epitomizes desperation. We see that in her situation. 12 years of desperation. And she may have had it in her plans to kind of secretly touch Jesus or even the fringe of his clothing to get healing because of how ostracized she was for her being unclean. But just like the leper, church, hear this, just like the leper, what would have made anyone else ceremonially unclean did not make Jesus unclean. Rather, Jesus made them both clean by healing them in an instant. In an instant. It says that Jesus spoke tenderly to this woman. And instead of being repulsed by her, he healed her. As we see right there in verse 22, let's read it again. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Notice how he called her tenderly daughter. This was a grown woman. He called her daughter. What a compassionate Savior. Now, you may understand why I titled this sermon The Reviver when it comes to the other healings, right? Of the raising of the dead, of giving sight, of healing the mute. But I want us to see here Right here in the beginning, I want us to see how Jesus revived this worn out, exhausted, desperate, sick, and tired woman. Fully zapped of her energy herself. And I want us to see how this word revive, of course, also relates to her as the dictionary puts it. One definition would be to restore to life or consciousness. That's what we think about. But also, another definition is to give new strength or energy to, or to improve the position of. And thanks to the compassionate Jesus, this woman had new strength and energy, didn't she? And her position was certainly improved. That's an understatement. That's too late to say it was just improved. No, it was transformed. The reviver, Jesus, transformed this woman. He revived that woman that day. He was not too busy for her, even in the midst of his ministry. And the woman, you see, who came to him in desperate situation, she put her faith in him. Church, Jesus is not too busy for you. And if we trust him, he's not gonna ignore us. He's there for us. Would you place your trust and faith in Jesus today as well? Maybe you're here and you're in some kind of a desperate situation 
yourself. And I want to say this, anyone who has not yet trusted Jesus as their Savior is in the most desperate situation of them all. As we saw last week, our problem of sin and guilt is our biggest problem completely. There's nothing else that comes close. Put your faith and trust in this reviver. Put your faith in Jesus. He can transform you. And speaking of a desperate situation here, let's get back to this poor man who had just lost his daughter. We learn from the other gospel accounts that his name was Jairus. And also, we see here that he was, in other accounts, we see that he was a religious leader. He happened to be also a ruler of the synagogue. This, This guy was a big deal. We saw how the scribes, the religious scribes, treated Jesus before, right? They were dissing him for Jesus' claim to forgive. They didn't like Jesus saying that. We saw last week how the Pharisees treated Jesus, these religious men, gossiping about him for eating at Matthew's house with blatant sinners and reprehensible, shady tax collectors. We saw that last week. But now, what do we see in this religious man? We have a desperate dad, Jairus, who put aside any and all of his religious pride and saw in Jesus as someone who was his only hope, his daughter's only hope. He was desperate to get to Jesus, and he didn't care who saw him go to Jesus that day. He even knelt down on his knees, which is a posture of worship and desperation, asking Jesus for help to bring his little precious girl Back to life. Now, I have three daughters. I have daughters around 12 years age. I couldn't imagine what this poor man must have felt. And I know that there are those here who have been in situations losing a child. This is a weighty moment. This is a serious time. And this man saw Jesus as his only solution. It truly is the sick who needs a physician, as Jesus said, both spiritually and physically. And of course, the dead is a desperate situation. I mean, the dead, really? Did he intervene here miraculously, even with someone who had died? This man, Jairus, had great faith in Jesus to go to him in this desperate situation. And here's the thing. Once a person dies, it can seem like there is no hope. Now, you see, he goes to him in that situation. And all of this was happening close to, relatively close to when she died because we even see in the other gospel accounts, it reveals even that there might have been a moment here in which she was still alive that Jairus maybe first made first contact With her before she died, but Matthew just cuts to the chase, and all the different accounts point to the fact that she really did ultimately die before Jesus ever gets to her, as you look in Mark and Luke. But to think that Jesus had the power to raise from the dead, you see, it required great faith from Jairus, Jairus. And can you believe it? Even after she died, and the professional mourners were kind of making all this commotion that day, as it was the custom of the day, 
to even hire people. They were professional. They were hired to wail and scream and play flutes and make all kinds of noises indicating deep grief and sadness. Jesus arrives when that's happening and she's being mourned because she really was fully and completely dead. But to Jesus, and in in reality, this was only a temporary death as he knew that only moments later she would be back in her daddy's arms, alive and well. So Jesus is kind of prophetically calling the shot here that she's going to raise. She's not going to stay dead. And she was so clearly dead that the mourners, when Jesus said what he did, must have felt the freedom to unprofessionally take a pause from their mourning and grieving and weeping and wailing, which was their job. It's literally why they were there. They, they did a timeout. They paused, since they were hired, of course, to have a nice little hilarious laughter moment and session at Jesus' claim at his expense. Why? Because they thought Jesus had lost his mind. This girl was dead. She was not coming back, according to them. But just as Jesus healed the desperate woman before, he healed and revived this dead young girl in the midst of all this commotion and all this mocking of him. He took this little girl by the hand, and I could almost picture him taking her by the hand, even as if taking one of my little ones by the hand. And he took her by the hand and said, little girl, arise, or Talithakumi, as we see in the other accounts. And the girl, what does she do? She arose. She was dead, but then she arose. Jesus really is the great reviver, isn't he? And by this account, the application of this account is not that Jesus raises every one of our loved ones from the death when they die, because we know that just doesn't happen. But what does it do? What does it do? It shows us that Jesus is amazing. He's a real deal. And he did that then to point to the fact that he was Savior and that we can all have hope that Jesus, even if we die, will raise us once again today, as we saw in our Sunday school hour, looking at the Psalms together. Jesus will raise us one day again. He is the great reviver. And even if we're not revived or or healed this side of heaven, oh, don't we have a Savior of sinners who's taking care of our guilt so that we can have eternal life and it doesn't just end here and now? That's the kind of hope that we have from this great reviver. That's the kind of hope that I want to pass on to everyone here. This leads us to our third miracle today. And number three, to see the blind Revived. Look with me now at Matthew 9 and verses 27 through 31 for this. Matthew 9 and verse 27 says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. 
We've seen Jesus conduct some miracles here the last few weeks, and sometimes throughout his ministry, he wants people to tell others about what happened to them. Other times, though, he asks them to keep it under wraps. Why? Why does he do that? I think uh, Pastor Douglas Sean O'Donnell helpfully points us in a good direction here. He says and explains, Jesus is not looking for the fanfare that comes with the power to heal, okay? More importantly, he does not want the crowds and his disciples to misunderstand the nature of his kingship. He is the son of David, but unlike David, and and nobody's going to get this fully until after the resurrection, right? But unlike David, he has not come as a military warrior, but as a sacrificial lamb. He is the son of David, but also the suffering servant. That's helpful, isn't it? Now, the blind man understood that Jesus was the son of David. That's amazing that they could make that profession. But they failed to listen and heed Jesus' instruction about keeping things under wrap, as we see right after he warns them strictly, they go and tell others about him. These two men, you see, they were desperate too, just like the woman, just like this father with his daughter who had passed away. They're desperate, and what's really important to see here is that they had some of the mature, most mature faith of all the people coming to Jesus for healing, and they were theologically astute enough and accurate in seeing I say that metaphorically because, of course, they could not physically see. They were blind. It was just dark to them. But they can see in their heart of hearts. They could see something about Jesus. They had eyes and ears to hear that Jesus truly was the son of David. Did you see that? The long-awaited and promised and anticipated king and Messiah. They knew it. They called him that. It's the first time we see Jesus referred to that in the Gospel of Matthew. And we saw in our last series on Matthew, chapters 1 to 7, that series titled Kingdom Come, we saw right off the bat in Matthew chapter 1 and in the genealogy that Jesus was in the royal kingly line of King David himself, didn't we? So these men referring to Jesus as the son of David, they're referring to Jesus as the long-awaited king, the king who came to save They saw exactly who Jesus was, and after being healed, they disobeyed Jesus, though, in his direction, because they were awestruck at what had happened to them, and they just had to tell them. So they may have been really, really mature in their thinking about Jesus, praise God for that, but a little hasty and a little immature in their actions as well, right? Kind of reminds us of new converts, doesn't it? Someone who just gets saved. They don't always do the right thing, but praise God, new believers see and believe and trust the right thing in the Savior. These men could not see physically, but they saw more clearly spiritually than the religious elite and leaders who were attacking Jesus and Jesus' faithful ministry and Jesus' strong claims of deity, they didn't see it themselves. These blind men saw it crystal clear. The Pharisees and scribes, these certain ones that we've been seeing, you see, they were blind spiritually, weren't they? They could not see Jesus for who he was, even though they were able to see him physically. They saw him, they talked with him, they saw what he did. These guys were blind physically. They couldn't see anything 
They couldn't see a face. They couldn't see the sunset. They couldn't see their family. They couldn't see their friends physically. But they saw spiritually better than those who should have known better. And they went to Jesus. Oh, it's amazing. They went to him and he healed them on the spot. It's amazing. The title they address him as revealed their faith and believe in Jesus. They believe in him. But Jesus pressed them on whether or not they believed that he could give them sight. And what do they do? They replied to them what was already in their hearts. And they said, yes, Lord, we believe it. That's why we're coming to you. You're son of David. He touched their eyes and he gave them sight. Amazing. Wow. If you find yourself here with us or through this series and you might happen to be blind spiritually like the religious leaders, I don't know, maybe you just can't quite seem to grasp the beauty and wonder and majesty of Jesus. You see other people getting excited about him, but it just kind of doesn't hit you like that. You're like, I don't know what the big deal is. I don't know why pastor's getting all excited up there at the pulpit. If that is where you're at, and maybe that's where you're at, you don't have the wonder and awe, the faith, the eyes, the love for Jesus, I want to encourage you that he can open up your eyes too. He gave sight to these blind men. He can give you spiritual sight like they had prior to ever having physical sight. This is a magnificent reviver, and he is at it again, continuing to revive one after another after another. And this leads us now to our last and final point as we see not only that he gives life and that he gives sight and that he revives energy, but we move here quickly to our last point, and we see his rescue even from demonic oppression again as he gives this poor man's speech back after he had lost it. Let's look at point number four, the mute revived in verses 32 through 34. Verse 32 says this, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, The mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Talk about a real killjoy. Talk about a real downer. You've heard the title, The Life of the Party. Come to think of it, Jesus was the life of the party in the sermon we saw last week as he hangs out with sinners. Well, the Pharisees here, you see, they were exactly the opposite of that, weren't they? Everyone sees the glory of Jesus. They're witnesses to it. Everyone is marveling at his demonstrations. The crowds were flocking to him for healing and deliverance. They see and saw his resume. They know how special Jesus is. In fact, the crowds are marveling and even in awe and had a healthy fear over this miracle-working man. They were in awe. They were fearful at his demonstrations. And wouldn't we all be awestruck at his demonstrations? In fact, if you have been with us the last four weeks, I hope you too 
are in awe of this miracle-working, powerful King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you in awe? How do you respond to these things? Do they get you excited? Does it cause you to fear? Does it cause you to worship? Does it cause you, your faith to increase in the Savior? How do you respond to the amazing, mighty, worker, powerful, authoritative King? Jesus healed by proxy, remember, from a distance. He healed by touch. He healed by covert touch, though it wasn't really covert, was it? He knew what was going on. Jesus opened blind eyes. He healed by the power of his will. And even with the intention of his mind and his will, he got it done. He lifted up the paralytic, as we saw last week. He lifted up the dead and deceased young little 12-year-old girl as we just saw. Jesus did amazing things. And he's cast out demons over and over by a word. And now here he is once again casting out a demon that was causing this man the inability to even say a word, which just to be clear here, because somebody has disabilities or challenges like this doesn't mean that they have a demon as some have falsely, completely, irrationally, and crazy, crazily, if that's a word, taught. That's not what this reveals. But with a word, this man was oppressed and had a problem. He couldn't speak because of it. And with one word, he was able to give this man who wasn't even able to say a word, wasn't even able to sing a song, wasn't even able to have a conversation with somebody, with a word, he was able to completely heal this man, save this man because of this demonic activity, and give him his speech back. Oh, this is amazing. How do we respond to all this amazing thing, things that Jesus has done? Remember, church, as we've been seeing over and over every week here so far in these last few sermons, Not everybody responds in ways that show they love and trust and like what Jesus was all about in his ministry, do they? Some people don't want anything to do with him, like the town that we saw who shushed him away after he healed the demoniacs, casting them into the pigs, remember? They asked him to go. They sent him packing. They said, thanks for your stay. Here's your luggage. Get out of here, Jesus. Not everybody responds to Jesus with appreciation and love and worship. Some would rather gossip and talk bad about Jesus for his going and spending time and eating with sinners and tax collectors. Some thought Jesus was blaspheming by saying he could forgive. They threw shade on Jesus' ministry and now even though no one could deny the mighty works and power of Jesus. Nobody. They saw it. They saw crippled people walk. They saw dead people raised. They saw hurting people with chronic challenges and trials completely healed. They saw it. They recognized it. But what do we see? We see the Pharisees strike again in their poor response to Jesus. Poor is a bad and not a great and strong enough word. They're reprehensible response to Jesus. The religious leaders who should have known better opened up their mouths in the midst of this display. They opened up their mouths in the scene of Jesus's ninth healing 
of a human being, 10th miracle overall that we've been seeing, rapid fire, his sovereign will over the wind and seas, if you add that one. And what do these religious leaders say? What comes out of their mouth? Do they rejoice and throw a party in thanksgiving of Jesus and his ministry and deliverance and wonderful things he did? Do they worship Jesus and fall on their feet and bow down before him like Jairus did? Do they seek to bring others to Jesus and tell others about Jesus and the good news of Jesus? Is that their response? You'd think it would be, but it wasn't. It was none of that. It was the exact opposite. Because they saw in Jesus, in his clear and undeniable resume, something that made him better than every last one of them put together every better than everyone in the whole history of the world, better than every religious leader, better than every prophet, better than every anything. I don't care who it is, he's better than them all. Better than every Christian in all history. No one was like this Jesus. He's matchless, powerful, divine, authoritative. And that was really their problem with Jesus, wasn't it? They wanted to compete with Jesus. They saw him as a threat. They did not believe that he was the son of David like the blind men. They did not bow down to him like Jairus. They did not desperately seek him out of a crowd like that poor woman with the issue of blood. They didn't do that, but they shunned him. They rejected him. They got rid of him. They witnessed his great work, and they just explained it all away. The only thing that they could think of that had the kind of spiritual power and demonstration to display the things like Jesus was displaying What did the Pharisees do? They themselves blasphemed God by accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed himself and even satanic. Can you believe anybody, in light of all that we've seen, turn and reference Jesus like that? Wicked. Oh, what a turn of events we see here. And we're going to see more of this interchange with the Pharisee and their claim of demonic activity when we get to Matthew chapter 12 soon. And we're going to see even more how foolish their claims really were then. But for now, I want to leave us with this contrast, church. I want to leave us with the contrast of the rejoicing crowds and the disciples and the many believers on the one side and the doubt and jealousy and hatred that the religious Leaders had of the son of David, Jesus Christ himself. Do you see that sharp contrast? Make no mistake about it. You can't be on the fence with Jesus. Either you are for Jesus, worshiping him, following him with your life, or you're against him. And he really is the only reviver of people who trust in him and put their faith in him. He is not the reviver of these self-righteous religious people. And hear this, he's not the reviver of you either if you're stuck up in your prideful hearts like those religious leaders. If that describes you, he's not a reviver for people like that. He can be, but right now you're dead in your sins. You can't see, you're blind spiritually. Remember, he's come not to call and save the so-called righteous and good people and goody two-shoes, what? But he came for the sick, as we saw last week, for sinners, for the needy, for the desperate. 
do you sense your need of Jesus? Are you desperate for Jesus? Or do you think you have it all together and have it all figured out on your own like the Pharisees? Have you been marveling at Jesus' amazing display or have you been yawning and careless and heartless towards the work of Jesus? Have you been ignoring his matchless resume? Maybe being more excited about other kinds of things than true biblical ministry, than true life and work of Jesus. If you're honest and put your nose up to him and everyone else around you because you've got it all worked out on your own, I want you to be honest by that. Why? Because only one side gets the reviver. And as the night in Indiana Jones said, you better choose wisely. And let's pray together to that end. Or five.